and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is Thursday, December the 5th. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your super early 5 a.m. 5 a.m. 5 a.m. I know I keep saying it over and over again. 5 a.m. morning wake-up call. For all of you early risers, welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in. Um, We will be joined uh, after the break by uh, a friend of the show. Um, He he was on the show a few months ago, uh, right before leaving for New Zealand, uh, Michel Bursma, and uh, look forward to having him back on uh, in just a few minutes to kind of update us on some of the the work he's been doing down under uh, for these last few months, and uh, look forward to catching up with him uh, with that. Uh, In other news, Vancouver Whitecaps coach fined for MLS amateur comments. Um, headline, Vancouver Whitecaps coach Mark Dos Santos has been fined for calling Major League Soccer quote-unquote amateur. The comments were made in an interview with The Athletic and were in reference to the length of offseason MLS has in comparison with other major divisions around the world. Players at the top level, they have three weeks, one month maximum on break, Dos Santos said. I'm telling you, three months and a half of a break in a soccer season is, it's amateur. It doesn't happen in the world. The Whitecaps did not make the MLS playoffs, meaning their last game of the 2019 campaign was on October the 6th. With the new season not set to kick off until February 29th, Although the players trained through November and will return in January, they have a long period without competitive action. A statement from MLS said that Dos Santos' comments were in violation of the league's public criticism policy. You know, U.S. soccer, Major League Soccer has this, like, thin-skinned issue. Like they, they don't like criticism. They want their broadcasters to always talk positive about them. They want everybody involved within Major League Soccer to always talk positive. And I and I get it. Look, we don't like negative press. No one does. No one enjoys negative press. I get it. We all get it. And maybe he could have used a different word in terms of amateur. Maybe he said it in a way that that Major League Soccer felt was derogatory. But he brings up a very important point. It's something that has been talked about for a very long time. Having your, your last match beginning of October and your next match the very last days of February is too big of a gap. And he's right. For far too long, we've not really taken our first division and thus everything beneath it as serious and, and made it as competitive as we could. When we look at the calendar of Major League Soccer, starting games at the very end of February and going forward with long winter breaks of three to almost four months is not taking the sport serious in the way the rest of the world takes the sport serious. And for anyone who's sitting here going, but we have, we have weather issues we have to deal with. You don't think that the rest of the world has climate issues, has weather issues. Have you checked to see where some of these countries are that continue to play? Have you checked to see how Scandinavia handles their seasons? They work around them, but they don't just take ginormous breaks with nothing going on. What he really means by amateur is he's talking about the gap. He wasn't, he wasn't criticizing the league from a quality of play, although we readily do on the show. 
that's not what he was talking. He wasn't saying this, this is amateur hour and this is just a, you know, a clown circusly. He wasn't derogatory in that standpoint. He was just saying the high, highest level, the competitive level leagues don't take this kind of time off. Now that's a valid criticism. It's one players, it's one coaches, it's one executives. It's a conversation they should be having. And I don't have any issue with them saying that in public, that we should be looking at a longer season. Quite frankly, I think we should be looking at a completely inverted season. We should stay with the Northern Hemisphere and kick off in, in August, September, finish up in May. We can work around winter breaks. We can work around weather. And for those lower division leagues that are primarily based in cold weather in the winter because your footprint, geographic footprint, is is all north. It's all in the northern part of the country. There are ways to work with that as well, whether that's indoor facilities or as Scandinavia has also figured out, maybe you're starting in July and you are taking a little bit longer break in the winter coming back and finishing in May and then jumping right into your next season but you're figuring out ways to work and accommodate and get more football played more soccer competitive matches played regularly finishing up a season at the beginning of October and and, and then looking at staying out of competitive matches to the end of February, it's just too long. And the amateur part of this whole thing is not the comments. It wasn't even the disparaging part. It's just the reality. If we are going to treat this as what it should be treated as, professional first division football, professional first division soccer. We should be looking at the countries where the the sport is excelling, where it is succeeding. And if we look at those models, we can be inspired by them. It doesn't mean we have to copy every single thing. And we've talked about that in in regards to a connected system of leagues and a pyramid and, and how to basically adapt the principles of promotion and relegation, but make it work for a continent sized country like the United States. We can do the same thing here with our scheduling. We can adapt. We can learn principles. We can learn lessons. And the ultimate principle that he's talking about is we should not have giant gaps. This is an area where U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer have viewed the sport like the NFL, like Major League Baseball like the NBA, we're going to give everyone some time off. And we're going to do big chunks of time off. The NFL is going to finish its Super Bowl in the beginning of February, and they're not going to get back into the thick of it until the fall. The NBA is going to kick off in mid-fall, and it's going to finish up in June. It's going to have some time off. Major League Baseball is going to start in the spring and it's going to finish up in October. They're going to have time off. That's not the game. That's not the global game. When we look at how the the game is organized around the world, they're not taking three and a half months off. One of the aspects of the sport that is is more important than a lot of people realize is rhythm flow regular training in a in a in an organized matter in a productive matter in a regular set schedule actually helps prevent injuries but it also helps create a better flow of play when you have a manager who knows what they're doing, a manager who can build on a, 
an ideology, a philosophy of how they want to play, and they're able to get into a rhythm in, in teaching that and that rep- repetition over and over again. That, that's part of football that makes the sport so great. It's not one set play. As much as uh, Alexi Lawless and others love set plays, that's actually not the beauty of the game. It's not running the Statue of Liberty or a flea flicker like we see in American football. It's not about a, a, a baseball manager managing the game or, or a pitching coach calling pitches. It's not about the timeout in the NBA. It's about the flow of play. It's a different animal altogether. And when it's working well, when you see a team playing beautiful football, and it doesn't always have to be the same style, but you just see a well-oiled, like just excellent, excellent football. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful, but that only comes from rhythm and flow. And it's very difficult when you're finishing your last competitive match in the beginning of October to maintain that or recapture that when you have three and a half months off. By the time you get into a flow and heading into what should be kind of the downhill stretch, you're done. And then you've got all this time for three and a half months until you start again. If we zoom out on a macro level and we look at the comments about amateur, it it falls right in line with some of the other big picture things we've been talking about on the show. Some of those are how we do the game organizationally. When we look at doing soccer the global way, the way that it works around the world, the way that has produced world-class players, a culture that produces world-class players, when we do the, the, the world's game the world's way, you see excellence. You see the potential for excellence. And that includes the schedule, but it goes way beyond the schedule. It goes into so many other aspects, your day-to-day training environments. It goes into the aspects of scouting, recruiting. It goes into the aspects of solidarity and uh, training compensation, payments to smaller clubs that develop players. I mean, we, we are technically doing soccer in America, but we're not really doing it the global way. And there's a big difference between what we do in this country and the way it's done around the world. It's eye-opening. If, you, if, you, if you've never taken the opportunity or if you've never had the opportunity, I would encourage you to do this if possible, and that is to get on an airplane and go somewhere else in the world. Go to South America. Go to Mexico. If you live in Southern California or Texas, drive, get in your car, go across the border, and go and observe the game in a different environment. Get on an airplane and fly to Europe. Go observe and take in a a Premier League match or a Barcelona match or a Serie A match or a Bundesliga match, an Eredivisie match. Take these matches in and, and just drink in the culture. Observe the fans. We're not doing things the way the rest of the world does them. Therefore, we're having to artificially create different aspects to to try to pretend that we're actually playing the global game. Major League Soccer does this with artificial scarcity. They, they, they create a closed system to, to try to drive up value 
and artificially bump up demand saying we're not going to let just anybody in we're only going to pick one or two and we're going to make you bid a lot of money for it and and we're going to make this exclusive therefore you're going to have to give us a lot of money that's one way that we do things we prop things up artificially we do the same thing with the schedule we pretend that we're doing it like the rest of the world the, the games matter but we set up a regular season that finishes in the beginning of October and then we go into a playoffs and if you were the best team throughout the regular season and you get into the playoffs and you get knocked out it didn't matter that you were the best team for 20 games it only matters that you lost one and for all of those who, who bang the drum for playoffs and say, well, that's the better way, the truth is the way the rest of the world works is every game matters. Every game is a playoff game. Well, what does that effect have on training? Every club cares. Every player cares. Their game checks depend on it. What league the, cl- the club, the team is playing in depends on it. Instead, we try to artificially create pressure by introducing playoffs at the end of the season. And what is the byproduct? You see a team like Vancouver not make the playoffs. And now they're sitting three and a half months without a competitive match. All because we're trying to artificially set up a competitive schedule. And we see this artificial theme continue to play itself out over and over again. We set up development academies and we pretend that they are professionally run. That they are world-class development academies. But are they producing world-class players or is that just a motto that's an artificial slogan we haven't done it yet we we would like to do it we hope to do it we hope our academies get there but they haven't done it and we're walking around using a hashtag world-class da but it's not world-class we haven't done that We're artificially creating a narrative that doesn't get backed up by reality. In fact, what's happened with a lot of our DAs is is that kids get into these environments and they feel like they've made it, that they've arrived. They're they're one of the, the chosen few that have gotten into a major league soccer development academy. They feel like they are the best of the best, but they may not be but we've created a delusion this artificial layer of excellence when nothing has been proven yet and our scouting network is so weak we don't even know if it's right the transfer market has shown us that we're not there yet the world sees potential In U.S. soccer, they haven't seen the reality yet. I don't think we ever get there until we remove from the equation this idea of faking it till we make it. This idea of artificial realities. Whether that's scheduling, whether that's our slogans, whether that's how we, we set up our structure of leagues with an artificial pyramid that doesn't really exist. Because there is no promotion and relegation, there is no definitive metric that says a major league soccer crown division one is better than USL league one 
in Division Three. On paper, it says that. But what, what, it, what it actually says when you read the paper says it's artificial. It just says that one owner paid more money to get into that league. It says that one owner might have been worth more money to get into that league. It says that one owner may have had a bigger stadium to get into that league. It didn't say anything about the quality of play on the field. It's artificial. We don't have a pyramid. We have a numbered system of leagues. It's not a pyramid of leagues, and it is certainly not connected. Speaking of being connected, if you have not connected yet with Ductic Brand, you need to do so, and you need to do it today. Go to ductigbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com, and use promo code DWSHOW. Do it right now in time to get your uh, holiday presents, your Christmas presents in before uh, Christmas hits, and uh, maybe, maybe it's for your son, maybe it's for your daughter, maybe they're a coach, maybe they're a player, maybe you're just hearing about this for the first time. Go to Ductic brand.com check check out their stuff it's really really great stuff their their journals their notebooks their uh, winter gear all of it ductigbrand.com use promo code dw show to get 10% off of your next order we'll be right back after this Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday, December the 5th. We are excited to be joined from down under by uh, a friend of the show, Mikhail Bursma. Mikhail, welcome back to the show. How are you? You are uh, in the in the throes of summer while uh, all of us in the Northern Hemisphere are uh, heading straight into winter or already in winter. How's the adjustment been so far? Thank you very much for uh, for having me again, Daniel. Uh, yes, summer here. Uh, well, adjustments uh, are are going fine. I think uh, I, I came from uh, from European summer uh, when I started here at the end of August, and um, then uh, it was still winter here, uh, but uh, the temperatures were uh, were rising already. So uh, not too bad, not too bad. So. Um you went down there. We talked right before you headed down to New Zealand and you had kind of an idea of, you know, what was, um, you know, kind of going through, you know, your mind in, in, in the idea of a job and, and, and kind of this goal of coming down, doing some methodology and, and, and some different aspects with the club kind of share with us, you know, what has it been like, you know, you, you got down there and, and immediately were able to start kind of observing what was going on and then started taking steps to, uh, you know, to, to, to take that job on. So what has that been like? What has that process been like for you? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was very interesting. I uh, actually straight from the plane, I uh, we, we we drove uh, first to uh, uh, to to my my place to stay for a couple of days. But actually, straight after that, we went to the fields. And uh, for me, it was like a flight of of uh, of two days uh, from from Amsterdam to Dubai, Dubai, Sydney, Sydney, Christchurch, and then uh, being there all. Uh, all worn out, but still uh, able to uh, to be at the fields. We uh, we watched some training sessions, and I actually uh, jumped in uh, in the whole uh, the whole um, world here in term three. I think and uh, it's important to to know that there are four terms here in uh, in New Zealand. They are uh, equally divided as the school terms, and that's also how uh, how football is. Uh, is, is, is being uh, being experienced. So I, I, I came in in the last couple of weeks of term three. Um, the usual football season here uh, is active in term two and term three, so in the winter months. And then in summer, uh, not everybody here is, is running an all-year program, but we do. So uh, when I came down there in at the end of term three, it gave me a couple of weeks uh, in order to adjust, to get to know uh, everybody to uh, see who was involved in football, what kinds of different programs uh, are running in uh, in New Zealand, and uh, and most importantly as well, get to know all the players uh, of uh, of our club. So, uh, in terms of uh, you know, kind of this this process and and kind of beginning the day-to-day week-to-week implementation of the process and your job and methodology what have you guys done specifically on a week-to-week basis maybe schedule wise or what have you to begin this idea of methodology and, and really you know ingraining into coaches as well as players and others um, what you guys are trying to do as a club yeah so um my basic idea was, and I, I talked about this already before uh, before I came to New Zealand, to make sure that um, I, I, as a foreigner, come into a new country, new culture, new uh, new people. So it has to be. Um, it would be very coincidental if all the ideas I have would be a perfect fit for this environment. So basically, the first three weeks, I, I started to observe and to listen a lot to all the coaches, to uh, to watch all the training sessions, to see what the players were doing, see how they played football, and um, with a lot of conversations also about well the past. So what what did coaches do in the past? Uh, what did they experience with our club already? What did they think uh, we should improve on? What what were good things already about the club? Uh, I got lots and lots of information at the end of term three. And um, by talking to those coaches and those players, uh, a thing that they really wanted was some more guidance uh, when it came to uh, football content and methodology. Uh, so basically what, uh, what, what I started to implement from the beginning was um, more, more uh, joint sessions. So uh, on, on Monday, our academy, uh, so start of term four, our academy started to, uh, to train together. That means that the under-13s, the 14s, the 15s, and the 17s were uh, doing the same session where coaches uh, were together as well and uh, were able to, uh, uh, to, to, to try new things out, to, to get my help if they needed it, or to, uh, uh, to, to, to dig, in, dig deeper into the content that we are uh, trying to, uh, uh, to deliver. Uh, the same happened also for the pre-academy, for the under-9s, under-10s, under-11s, and under-12s on the Tuesday. So that's uh, something we're now eight weeks in in term four, and uh, we, uh, we 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 really benefit from that. Also, I think that the players uh, notice that there is some uh, more um, consistency among the age groups. Besides that, uh, we started a coaching course also for that uh, that guiding purpose that uh, that coaches were asking for on the Sunday. Every Sunday we have a two-hour course where we have a theoretical part. After that, we go onto the field with uh, every week a different age group from our academy, so they get an extra training in order to reflect on that later. And that's also going really well. It connects also pretty well to the joint sessions on Monday and Tuesday because the same concepts can be uh, can be used there. Um, besides that, um, we... Um, we have our coaching meetings uh, monthly, and in those monthly coaching meetings, we um, we are talking about uh, the structure. 
So I talked about it with you before that uh, it's important if your if your club has values that those values are actually going to be uh, translated into a game idea, which is general. And the general game idea flows into uh, principles of play in attack, transition and defense, which are guidelines for the teams in order to organize themselves. And basically we go from that to sub-principles in, in, in zones to um, our training structure. And uh, I figured that the training structure was already there, but the connection from the training structure with uh, the values through all those uh, different steps is something that we are working on in our coach meetings now. So every coach prepares for every coach meeting apart. And then uh, we are talking about uh, the different options we have and what the club's values are and how everything connects and what would be a good decision for us as coaches to, uh, to make when it comes to forming those guidelines. When you have observed these joint sessions, U13, 14, 15, 17s, and the players, how have the players taken to and adapted to this difference in terms of, you know, joint training? I was actually very, very, uh, very interesting because obviously when you were U13 and you have to to face uh, U17s all of a sudden, it's sometimes uh, kind of a shock. but also for 17s to uh, to play with, uh, with 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 younger guys like uh, under 13s is actually as well something that uh, players weren't very used to, and um, together with um, uh, with the coaches we uh, we noticed it uh, this as well. And uh, in the beginning we we didn't really explain why we did it, and that led also to some motivational problems, especially the uh, the the both ends of the of the spectrum. And after we uh, we told them more about, okay, what we actually want to achieve is that in those uh, exercises that we do, you can move up, you can move down. And mostly we, we played uh, rondos together. Uh, and in rondos, it doesn't really matter how physical you are because it's about tactical ability. And it can be uh, possible that when... Um, when you were under 13, that you might be tactically more advanced than an under 17 player because in a rondo, that physical comp- component falls uh, falls apart. So um, basically with uh, with the players and their feedback they gave on our sessions, uh, we were able to, uh, to improve it by also uh, explaining them why we wanted to train together and why we wanted them to be exposed to, uh, to different uh, challenges. And... In terms of the the genesis of this idea, the origin for this, you know, combined experiment of, of training the multiple ages together, where did that idea, you know, originate, and what was the why? What was the ultimate reason for these players to that that was explained to the players for this, you know, joint training, um, you know, philosophy? So uh, basically, there were a couple of uh, couple of things that we uh, we wanted to address, and um, the, the the basic idea is uh, is, is based on on, uh, on a theory that's called the zone of proximal development. Some people uh, know it better as like comfort zone, uh, learning zone, and the panic zone. And um, if you are in um, in in your comfort zone, you won't really learn. And if you're in your panic zone, you won't uh, you won't learn either. So we need to uh, to try to create an environment where the success rate is approximately 70, 80 percent, where uh, success is still there and basically mo- most of the time. But there are also uh, mistakes for a certain percentage which uh, challenge the players. So if we look at that from a tactical perspective, then in a rondo, uh, obviously when I win the ball every single time uh, and I keep the ball. That's success, and every time I lose it, I'm in the middle, so that's uh, that would be uh, a failure. So what we introduced here, and uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Joe Cole, uh, was actually very helpful in the, the research behind it, but also in the practical uh, uh, translation from, the, from those, those ideas, was a competitive rondos, where um, we play 4v1, 4v2 rondos, basically. Um, and we basically have a rondo which is the lowest and at the other end of the field is the highest rondo. The highest rondo has also uh, smaller uh, sizes, uh, so it becomes more uh, more challenging uh, as well in, 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 uh, in matter of space. 
And after one minute, the one who is in the middle drops down and the one who was on the outside the longest moves up a rondo. And um, besides the zone of proximal development, we also thought that um, it would be very interesting to see those decisive moments at the end of the minute to see how players are actually behaving in, in, in those decisive moments, which are probably in the game also uh, very uh, interesting because the more time in a game has been uh, played, the more important your, uh, your moves and your uh, executions will become because the, uh, the time in order to fix your uh, mistakes are, uh, is running out. So basically those are two ideas of, of a zone of proximal development and the increased importance of uh, executions uh, during games and the repetition of those moments were uh, our uh, main uh, goal in order to put all the age groups together. So uh, if you were always the best in your age groups or you were always the worst in your age groups, by mixing them up, you, you are uh, actually coming into a different uh, spectrum where you can try to move up a couple of times, you can move down a couple of times, um, but you are basically always in that zone of success, what you need to be in order to, uh, to actually learn uh, all the implicit lessons that are there to learn in a rondo. All right, so a couple, a couple key points I, w- I want to kind of go back and revisit real quick. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a long story again. Uh, well, eh? no, 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 it was good. It was very good. But just for the audience, <laughs> I want to, I want to kind of go back and, and unpack something uh, real quick. You mentioned these kind of three zones. I've, I believe you called it of proximal development and you talked about the comfort yeah. zone and the panic zone. What was the, the optimal learning zone? What is that zone called? Yeah, the, the, for us, it's the learning zone, the zone of proximal development. So that zone is the zone that we uh, we are looking for in our uh, in our training sessions, uh, in order to make drills easier or more difficult, uh, and get players into that uh, that right uh, right space in order to make sure that they are actually <coughs> learning from every minute training that they receive. The zone of proximal development. So when. Um when you're laying out these, these, you know, rondos, let's say, um, you know, a lot of times, um, especially one of the the big conversations that's been happening in Australia, it's also been happening, um, in a large way. A lot of our show, uh, in, in American soccer is, is around this idea of promotion and relegation. And we talk about it on a macro level and the importance of opportunity and how it brings pressure. You, you have integrated into your training sessions, a version of promotion and relegation with the players having the most success in a rondo moving up the, uh, the ladder of, of rondos, the rondos keep getting smaller, smaller, tighter, uh, spaces, uh, more challenging, more difficult. And then those who, um, you know, have spent more time in the middle who, who have not done as well are getting relegated and going down that ladder or progression of rondos. How have the players responded to that kind of a training environment? Has it inherently helped them stay focused and, and, comp- and increase the competitive level? What, what has been the response of the players to that kind of an environment? Yeah, in in the beginning, it was uh, very emotional sometimes as well because there's also a um, uh, a factor of luck in there because uh, uh, if if there is no decision made because there are two players who were on the outside as uh, equally long, then rock paper scissors decides who is uh, who is going to move up or down, and uh, that's also happening in 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 the game sometimes. You got a setback out of nothing, a referee makes a mistake or whatever, uh, but. That, that kind of emotions that we wanted to trigger, competitiveness on one hand, but also how do you, uh, how resilient are you when you uh, actually get a setback and how do you deal with it? Or do you give up immediately the next minute and are you two, three, four rondos down before you know it? And that's what, hap- what happens in a game as well. What, what, what do you do with a setback? And uh, we saw some players who were actually coping uh, very well with it, but we also saw players who struggled. And those players were players that were interesting for us in order to make sure, okay, how can we help you with this? Because it's clearly something that, uh, that, that you do for a couple of times now. We tape our sessions as well so they can uh, have a look at, the, at themselves as well after a setback. You can actually time them, how long it takes for them to get back at their uh, focus. And uh, talking about that, we talked with our players about, okay, um, so it might be unfair, 
but how is it going to help you in the next one? Because the next minute is already going uh, the moment the, the last one is, is, is almost done. So you are uh, you're continuously uh, exposed to, uh, to that competitiveness, but also to that uh, vital moment of increased importance uh, when, the, when the minute goes. And, and some players in the beginning really struggled with that, but after they understood, okay, this is what we're doing, this is what we're training, and this setback is actually a moment that I can learn from, that, that uh, increased uh, uh, the quality of, of the rondos as well. Because in the first uh, week that we played, the lowest rondo, they didn't care at all. So they were, uh, they, they knew they were the worst there, they didn't care, they, uh, they were just goofing around there and they never made it up again. So that's also behavior so that's very interesting for us in our academy to see like, okay, is that something that we want? Uh, but also is that a player that we want to nurture? And uh, we, had, we, had, uh, we had this conversation in general for the whole group, like, okay, what do we expect from the ones who are all the way uh, down? Do we expect from them that they give up or do we expect from them to fight hard in order to get it back into the, uh, the middle section or even the top section? Because it is possible if you get enough opportunities. So very, very, very interesting uh, uh, challenges, very interesting experiences that we had as coaches, but also as players. Uh, experimenting with this uh, uh, kind of idea. In terms of in terms of methodology, game model, are are all of your teams? Let, let, let's just stay with this group we've been discussing: U thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, seventeen. Are all of your teams um, playing under the same game model and philosophy? In terms of you know the tactical ideas, possibly formations, or is there variances there? What what is what is the club mindset in in, in philosophy on that? Yeah, we we uh, we, st- we started building, and uh, our our, um, our basic game idea uh, is, is 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 clear, and we also f- uh, started to formulate a principle for offense and defense. The transitional moments haven't been touched that much, uh, but below that we work with uh, with the Tovo principles of play, and the Tovo principles of principles of play are coming back uh, into that internal course that we are doing as well on the on the Sunday. So uh, the training structure is pretty much set. We uh, we, we we basically use the the Tovo training structure uh, from uh, from Barcelona, and uh, that's a rondo's position play and, and a training game. And uh, within those uh, exercises, we are able now to um, uh, to teach the general principles of uh, of Tovo, and uh, that's uh, that's very helpful. That also gives uh, players in the basics uh, the same idea of play, but talking about the 13s, 14s, 15s, and and 17s, there are still some differences in, for example, formation. Because uh, we do not say we want to play in a certain uh, formation at the moment. We haven't uh, developed our game model uh, as far yet that we uh, that we spoke about it. But what we do is um, we do play with the same intentions, and uh, that that's that's the most important at the moment. And the next coaching session is up in February because we just uh, at the end of November we had our last one for uh, for 2019. We go into the winter uh, in, uh, into the summer break here. And uh, after the summer break, we will uh, resume with building uh, what we have as a club. And uh, it takes some time because we do it together with all the coaches. Everybody is involved. And it also means that, uh, that everybody can have, uh, have their say and, uh, and their thoughts about uh, the way we as Christchurch United, connected to our values, uh, want to, uh, to nurture players and, and, and how we understand the game. Coming in as uh, as an outsider into that environment, you obviously talked about observing, learning, uh, building relationships, uh, listening to other people's ideas. How has the the transition in in, in uh, integration process for the other coaches and yourself with these Tovo ideas and, and even some of these other details that you've been you know sharing in terms of the the you know combined training for U13, 14, 15, 17s. How has that you know interaction and and uh, integration back and forth been between yourself and uh, you know as the outsider kind of coming in with a, a different perspective uh, as well as with those who are already in place. Uh, uh, how, how has that yeah. gone for you? Yeah, um, amazingly well, actually. Uh, I, I expected uh, 
uh, more difficulties in, in, in that matter because um, I think that everybody who is coming in new should uh, should first show uh, something before uh, before that trust is built. But actually, uh, from the moment I, I came in, everybody was was very very open, very respectful, and uh, and and very very helpful with uh, with everything that I that I asked. So that was uh, was amazing because that that speeded things up in the st- in the start already. And um, we had a good thing as well that like uh, a couple of our coaches already uh, went to Barcelona to do the Tovo course. And uh, that uh, that gave them uh, a head start basically for the moment that uh, that I came, and, and and also the training structure was pretty much in in place already when I arrived. So um, for me, it was it was it was it was a, a head start when uh, when we when I came in because everybody was interested in what I uh, came to to bring, and everybody was uh, was very very nice and and also very open to uh, to receive some feedback. Basically, it was also one of the things that they had uh, had been uh, missing the, the the last period of time. So they actually asked actively for uh, for more input, more feedback, uh, more guidance, and 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 that's uh, yeah that's speeding up uh, the process that I uh, wanted to uh, to start with them uh, massively. When you look at the players that you have available what are their you know you're around them you're around the coaches what what are these players aspirations uh in terms of their their future and their potential are they trying to make it to to europe are they trying to make it to your first team are they just enjoying the ride like what are some of the the conversations you're hearing or overhearing observing with the players there in new zealand yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, question because there are lots of, uh, of things going on in, in this country also when it comes to football. Uh, you have the the, uh, uh, the school football that's going on, then you have the, uh, the national age groups, you have the secondary schools, and then you have the club uh, pathway. And um, players are, uh, are actively uh, investigating now like, okay, what are the things that I actually have to do uh, and what are the things that I actually have to not do in order to uh, get a step closer to what I want? Because uh, there are different um, um, pros and cons with every program. And uh, for example, if if if, if your if your dream is to uh, to to indeed uh, make it to Europe as a professional player, uh, then then you have to uh, to make sure that you're going to this elite pathway where. Uh, nothing is going to distract you on your way because uh, it's it's a long way to go. Everybody knows because there are lots of Europeans, of course, who also have that ambition. Uh, if if you want to go, for example, to uh, to college in in the U.S., if that's one of your goals, uh, then uh, there is also uh, a pathway that uh, that several programs have their pros and their cons. So, um, lots of uh, different uh, ambitions, lots of different uh, perspectives from uh, from everybody here. Um, make it sometimes a puzzle in order to make sure that the load and loadability is well organized because there uh, sometimes there there are some conflicts in 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 the programs and uh, we need to solve that in order to make sure that the players are uh, staying fit because a fit player will always uh, have a bigger opportunity of getting closer to his goals than a player that is injured and cannot train when you look at the um the level of talent in New Zealand and the potential level of talent. Is there uh, a ceiling on the potential for greatness or is it just a matter of them getting in better training environments? You know, when you look at the, the country and you look at the players, um, what do you see overall in kind of a global sense? I'm not talking about specifically your club. I'm just talking in general. A lot of people, you know, make these kind of general assumptions about different parts of the world without ever having, yeah. you know, personally seen or, you know, had any kind of experience in a place to go, you know, hey, they could produce a world-class player or they couldn't. What have, you, what have your observations been so far in that respect? Well, um, basically, I think it, it, it doesn't really matter where you are. Uh, as long as as uh, as there is a uh, a clear uh, vision and a clear idea, and uh, people are really doubling down on that idea, you have an opportunity in order to uh, to start a gold mine anywhere. And I think if we look at uh, uh, all the different places that I've been in the U.S., uh, Cayman Islands, uh, Spain, Netherlands, uh, and now here in New Zealand, 
then um, play. You have players everywhere, and players want uh, want to do uh, their utmost best. But sometimes they are confused about all the options that are being thrown at them, and sometimes they struggle a little bit with take, taking ownership. Uh, but the moment they really uh, get that, then you have an opportunity. And then, of course, uh, we're at Christchurch United here, and uh, we we do have a beautiful facility. We have uh, two turf fields. We have a video analysis system that is uh, um, that I can turn on all the time. And um, we, we, we can do a lot of things that, uh, that I, I haven't been able to do before. Um, but also we have a culture where uh, football is not sports number one in this country. Uh, which you probably recognize from the U.S., and um, you have um, you you have a lot of things going on, and 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 it's uh, as as long as as we do not prove uh, that uh, that we actually uh, um, have the best quality uh, training, then players will be in doubt about where to go, and uh, that's something that we need to uh, to change. Also, together, I think with uh, with with some other clubs here in the region, in the country, uh, in order to make sure that if we are uh, absolutely passionate about uh, football and a pathway in New Zealand, that we are actually starting to uh, to look at what can we do in order to get it uh, get 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 a step closer to the elite way of training, more intense training, but also uh, more quality training when it comes to content and. Um, if I compare it to all the other um, uh, places I've been in the world, I think there is opportunity everywhere. And uh, at the moment, I'm uh, I'm here and uh, and I do everything in my power in order to make sure that uh, we go one step into the the right direction each day. In terms of the biggest challenge you see in front of you, what do you think that might be? The biggest challenge. We have a couple <laughs> ahead of us. Um, <clears throat> for, for me, the, the, the vital one is uh, whether players are buying into the idea. If, uh, if, if we can prove ourselves the next couple of months that, uh, and, and players are not only saying yes, but really doing yes and are, are fully committed and fully in, that would be uh, the, the massive challenge because if that challenge is being uh, reached, then uh, I think the opportunities of, of reaching the skies uh, are the limits. In terms of kind of flipping that same question on its head, biggest opportunity that you see now that you're in New Zealand? Uh, I think there is uh, there is uh, enough opportunity to work together with all the uh, entities that uh, that are around uh, youth academies and uh, and I think that the schools and the sports culture here uh, are uh, are very interesting. So the, the biggest opportunity would be to align everything. And, it, and when you talk about the schools and aligning everything, can you kind of give us a little bit of background info on that? I know here in the, in the U.S., a lot of people are familiar with, you know, high school sports yeah. and, and all of that. What, what, same, is, same. what is that there in New Zealand? For, for me, aligning means that we are going to take responsibility for uh, the players in our care. Uh, whether it comes to workload. So, for example, if I train on Sunday, the school trains on Monday. I train on Tuesday, the school plays on Wednesday. Uh, I train on Thursday and our game is at Friday. Then if they're going to do it all, then it's a matter of time before everybody gets injured. So if we do not communicate with each other and we just put our programs uh, out there and we all do it, then uh, probably we won't have any player left at the end of February. And Aligning means for me that every player has to look at, okay, what are the programs that are really going to help me in order to achieve and what am I going to do when, but also what am I going to skip when in order to make sure that I rest? Because if I rest at the right times, then I'll become stronger. And when I become stronger, I can get the full amount of quality out of any session I choose, whether it's club, whether it's uh, school, doesn't matter. It's about being ready for the training load instead of starting fatigued. So in terms of that process, you know, that's something that I know a lot of, uh, of clubs uh, deal with here in the United States, high schools deal with as well. Um, how do you, how do you work that process out? You know, how do you, how do you manage that conversation? Are you guys 
able to or have been able to make any kind of headway in sorting through that player workload and that conversation between yourselves as a club and an organization versus, you know, say the school that that uh, player is also, uh, you know, playing with? Yeah, we, we attack it from every single uh, angle we can think about. So, for example, uh, yesterday there was a tryout. The players who pl- from my team who were pl- playing in the tryout are not training today because they need their rest. Um, and I am taking responsibility for the knowledge I have about what, uh, what kind of trial they did, what kind of load that is, how long they need to recover. And that recovery time overlaps my training sessions, both of today, morning and afternoon. So that means that those uh, players do not uh, train with me today because they chose to do a trial yesterday. And um, I think that with knowledge about load and loadability comes big responsibility. And at the moment, we as a club are uh, ready to take that responsibility because we have the information that we need in order to make those decisions. And we will protect our players in that, uh, in that regard. And uh, we also need to know that that knowledge is going to get out there uh, at the other programs. And we are willing to uh, team up with them. And that's why uh, we have, uh, we have uh, in, in our office Matt Carruthers, who is uh, taking care of our relations with, uh, relationships with the um, with the schools and uh, also that's a process where we have to start with uh, a couple of schools and eventually we have to expand to as many schools as possible in order to make sure that every player who is going to whatever school they go to are being facilitated in uh, in this regard in order to make sure that uh, we align everybody around that uh, that player in order to make sure that they get the best uh, developmental opportunities possible in their pathway. So when you kind of, you know, take a moment to compare what you've experienced so far versus your expectations going into it, what, what would you, what would you, what would you, you know, compare? Like how, how would you view your expectations versus the reality? Has it been better than you thought it would be more challenging, going to take longer, or you're going faster than you thought kind of, you know, we talked right before you went and you've been talking about some of the things you've been doing since you've been there, compare and contrast your expectations versus the reality. Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I, I went into the whole uh, thing pretty open-minded. Of course, there are always some things that, 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 that uh, have your expectations. But uh, what, what, what surprised me actually was the, the willingness of, of my colleague coaches in order to dig in uh, to the ideas that I came uh, to bring. And uh, so, so in that regard, it's, uh, it's going faster uh, than I, I had expected. And uh, besides that, I was pretty open-minded and I pretty much uh, looked at what was in front of us and how I could contribute to all those different uh, parts of the bigger picture. So, yeah. And, and if I'm looking back now at the last three months, then I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with the, uh, the steps we have taken and the direction we're heading into. And I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to 2020 in that regard. Uh, last question here. When you look at, you know, this experience for you, your expectations going in, what you've already been able to accomplish, if someone listening or watching this uh, interview, this show, and is hearing you talk about some of these ideas and, and, and looking at, man, I would love to integrate something like that in, into our club right where we are. What would be some, uh, some tips or some advice that you would give them uh, in order to, to start kind of rethinking maybe the way they currently do what they do and implementing new ideas like the ones you're talking about uh, today? Yeah. The, the most important part for implementing stuff is getting people aboard with your ideas, I guess. So I think it's, it's very important that, uh, that, that you have a good relationship with uh, the people around you, the people you work with, and that, that uh, the relationship is genuine and that you're interested in the ideas of others as well. Because uh, basically, if, if we're talking about that idea, what we had with the joint sessions, then I, I really like the joint sessions. But because of my connection with, uh, with Joe Cole, we were actually able to connect it to a deeper level uh, and, and, and actually look for that zone of proximal development, uh, which he introduced to me. So if you have an, an idea or you want to create something which is new, the people around you usually have 
ideas as well. And maybe they are even uh, better or more in depth. Uh, so, so use the resources that are around you in order to implement things together instead of just shouting an idea and say this is what we have to do. Because usually that, uh, it ends there. Fantastic stuff, Mikhail. Uh, look, we really appreciate uh, you coming back on the show and talking about your experiences down under in New Zealand. And uh, best of luck to you as you are in uh, about to enjoy your your first summertime Christmas. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a little bit different experience being from the Netherlands uh, and enjoying a, a winter Christmas. You're going to get a summer Christmas this year. Um, how can people follow your work, follow you, connect? with you maybe pick your brain uh to get some more ideas or 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 bounce some ideas off of you uh going forward how, how can they connect with you online the easiest way is linkedin or uh or twitter twitter is uh Burisma, so my my initial and my last name and uh, linkedin is uh is just my my full name i think those are the the easiest ones uh, to uh, uh to find and then uh yeah uh, any questions always welcome so uh yeah looking forward to it well i uh i appreciate you coming on the show thanks as always uh we really yeah, appreciate you your time me. and absolutely and um best of luck as you continue to uh you know build this thing out and and implement your ideas uh going forward so really appreciate it and we look forward to having you back on again soon yeah, 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 for sure. Thank you very much for having me and uh, enjoy uh, Christmas time and uh, we'll speak again in a uh, new year. Sounds good. Same to you. That is Michael Burzma. He is uh, in New Zealand and uh, doing a really cool work. Connect with him uh, on Twitter, LinkedIn, as he, as he mentioned. Um, he's got some really good insight. And if you listen to this interview, he's talking about some really cool ideas, I think, that could really help you right where you are. Speaking of helping people right where they are charity water provides clean drinking water to people right where they are and you can learn more about charity water at charitywater.org we'll be right back after this no one no man no woman no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for watching, listening. As always, I'd like to thank Mihel for joining the show. Um, as always, I love his insight. Uh, the zone of proximal development, all of those little tidbits of information. Pick his brain. Get get connected with him on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, it, it's definitely will be worth your time. Big thanks to him for joining us today. As always, you can watch the show on Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. Check me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. We'll see you again tomorrow.